0: Well, welcome today. So glad that you're here with us today. If you're new, if you're just joining us, my name's Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church, and I just hope you uh, enjoy worshiping God together with us today. Uh, just before we get to the, the sermon today, uh, back in January, in fact, January 2nd to be precise, a whole bunch of us from the church began reading through the entire Bible in a year. And uh, so if, that's, if you're one of those people, you know that this week uh, we finished the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, those books are so rich. They're incredibly foundational, but they're kind of some heavy sledding in there. And, uh, and so now we kind of come to the book of Joshua. There's a few chapters in there that are kind of very detailed, but otherwise we get into the, the story of the people of Israel going forward. And and I just want to encourage you, if you're one of those people who, uh, who is reading through the Bible with us this year, just keep going. Don't stop now. Uh, you know, as I've been, uh, as I've been reading uh, through, there are some days where I'm just so encouraged as I read the Bible. There are other days where I've been challenged and convicted by what I've read. I've been like, oh, I need to, I need to change this or that. And there have been some days where I just read it because I'm reading it. It's part of the plan. And, and it just reminds me of what the Word of God says. And in fact, there's been a few times where I've got a little bit behind and I've had to catch up a little bit and and sort of spend some time and, and, and really catch up. And I just want to encourage you, same thing. If you're falling behind, don't. Just take some time, catch up and join us. And then I want to say to those of you who haven't joined us, if you want to join us now... Now that we're past those first five books, there's no shame in joining us now. In fact, I'd invite you to come and join us. Uh, you know, we're into the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. We're still in the Gospels in the New Testament. Uh, the, uh, the, the reading that we're doing is through an, a Bible app called uh, the you Version. It's free. You can download it on your phone, no problem. And it's one done by uh, Nikki Gumbel. And uh, just join us, uh, like, today... Uh, on uh, day number 112, I think it is. And you start with Joshua chapter one and just join us for the rest of the year. We'd love to have you join us. There's a ton of people doing it and it's not too late to join us. Okay, well, uh, that is uh, just uh, by the way of starting. Today, we're going to begin a four-week sermon series called How to Be Rich. Now here Ridge, typically when we preach through the Bible, we preach expositionally which means that we take a a section of the scripture, like for instance, like we did this fall, the first 15 chapters of Exodus, or like we just finished doing now the the last three chapters of Mark, and we go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We just look at what it says, what it teaches us about who God is, and what that means for us in our lives. That is the primary way that we uh, preach through the word of God here. But every once in a while, we look at it from a different way. We take rather a topic that the Bible addresses. And we look at what the scriptures say at it from sort of these different facets of scripture. And so that's what we're going to do from now into sort of early summer. We're going to look at two topics. Uh, The first is the topic of money and how to be rich. And the second is the Lord's Prayer and how to pray. So money and prayer, those are good topics to, to study together and to see what God has to say about both of those to us. So the first topic, the one we're starting with today, is money and how to be rich. And uh, I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes I think it would sure be nice to be rich. Uh, Nula and I, we know some people who are really rich. Uh, They are planning a a summer holiday in Europe this year. Uh, But rather than staying in hotels, they are actually going to rent a yacht and go from port to port on this yacht, which I thought, well, that's, I mean, that's pretty nice. A 30-foot yacht sounds a little cramped, and maybe, you know, the waves get a little high. I don't know. Maybe I'm not really keen on that. Uh, but it turns out that they're not going to rent a 30-foot yacht. They, with a few friends of theirs, are going to rent a 160-foot yacht that comes with a captain and a crew and a five-star chef and a pool on board. And, um, and that yacht only costs apparently $125,000 a week. I mean, these people that we know, they are rich. But I get the sense that if you asked them if they were rich, they wouldn't think that they're that rich. Because you see, to go on their holiday in the Mediterranean on this fancy yacht, they're going to have to fly there on a commercial flight. And their really good friends don't need to. Their really good friends actually would take their private jet if they were going to this trip. And so... The people that we know that are really rich actually don't really think they're that rich because the people that they know are really rich. You know, in my family growing up, we weren't rich. Uh, We had kind of everything that we needed, but I always remember my dad. My dad was such a good singer. And every once in a while we'd be in the kitchen or something, he'd just break out into song and he'd start singing this song from Fiddler on the Roof. It's a very famous song from that musical. I don't know if you've ever watched it, but the song is this, If I Were a Rich Man. And he'd walk around the kitchen singing, you know, if I were a rich man. And it goes, buddy, 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 bum. All day long, I'd buddy, buddy, bum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. Okay, there's a reason I don't lead worship. But, but the fact is, he'd sing that song, and we'd be like, yeah, we're not rich, but we have everything that we need. We always had enough. But the fact of the matter is that to be rich is about having more than enough, isn't it? To be rich is about having more than just what we need. Rich is about having extra and having more extra, right? I mean, we weren't that rich until uh, one day when I went on on a mission trip uh, if you ever get the chance to go on a mission trip, or if you ever get the chance to take your family, your kids on a mission trip, you should go. It'll, it'll open your eyes in, a, in, a, in an incredible way. Uh, the mission trip that I went on was to the Ukraine in the late 1990s. Uh, I was in my later 20s, and we went to the city of Lviv. You'll hear about it in the news regularly these days. Lviv is on the west side of Ukraine, so it's been less attacked during the war, although sometimes missiles have been hitting that part of the city. When we were there, this is such a beautiful city, and uh, we went there with a mission organization called Heart, uh, which has served uh, the churches in Ukraine for for decades now. It's the same organization that our church uh, raised all kinds of funds for to give uh, towards the refugee uh, needs of the people in Ukraine, Uh, and so I went there, and I remember uh, the whole group of us in our 20s, we arrived there on the first day, and we met the guy who was going to be our translator. He was Ukrainian and knew English, and and when he walked in, he was our age, he walked in wearing like really nice dress pants and a very nice shirt, buttoned down, collared, like pristine, really nice belt, dress shoes. And I was like, wow, that guy's doing all right. He looks sharp. And it was great. He served with us all day and, and then he went home. The next day he showed up wearing the same outfit. I thought that was kind of odd, but whatever. And but then the next day he came wearing the same outfit again. And the day after, and the day after, and the day after. And what became apparent to us is that he had one set of really nice clothes. And he would wear it all day, 12, 14 hours a day with us. Then he would go home and hand wash it in the sink and, and hang it to dry all night. And then he would get up early the next morning and he would press it so that it would look perfect and brand new. And then he would wear the exact same outfit again that day. And it was then that I began to dawn on me just how rich I really was. I mean, I, I think that I had a, more clothes in that little suitcase that I had packed to go to the Ukraine than he had in his entire closet. In fact, when I got home, I, I looked at my closet. I realized that I could probably wear a different set of clothes every day for an entire month without having to do any, any laundry. And, I don't know, maybe I should try that one day. But, 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 but the fact of the matter is that even now, uh, I'm reminded of that when sometimes we go through the closet and say, you know, this, this shirt is old, this shirt didn't really get worn, these pants. I mean, we fill up this huge garbage bag with these good quality clothes and take them to, take them to the thrift store because I want to make room for new clothes. And, and the, the fact of the matter is that's how rich we are. And this is the problem when it comes to talking about being rich. Rich is always the other guy. Rich is always the other family. The, the, the guy's down the street. And, and rich isn't really about having enough. It's about having extra. It's about having as much extra as the guy that has extra next to us has. Right? I mean, rich is always about having more than we currently have. Which means that you can be rich and not even know it. You can be rich and not feel like you're rich. You can be rich and not even act like you're rich, and, and that's the problem. And that's what we want to talk about for the next couple of weeks. You know, in our society, the message that we get over and over and over again is like, "This is how to become rich. This is how to get rich." It's seminars and classes and books and and advertisements, and and we just hear this message over and over. This is how to get rich. The, The problem is that we are rich. It's just that no one's actually told us that we're rich. And and the challenge that we have in our culture is not how to become rich, but rather how to be good at being rich. But in order to learn how to be good at being rich, we first have to come to the understanding that in fact, we are actually rich. In... uh, In 1866, there was this famous doctor. His name was Sir William Gull. Uh, He was a famous doctor because he actually treated his patients in a radically different way than all the other doctors did. You have to remember, in the 1800s, going to a doctor was kind of a dangerous thing. Uh, They didn't know a lot about medicine. They were kind of figuring it out, and you would often become their experiment. So, I mean, when you went to the doctor back then, there's no MRI, no CAT scan. They couldn't even do blood work on you. So they're mostly guessing. And, and they did things like bloodletting. I mean, if you were not feeling well, they'd put a leech on you, and it would suck the blood out of you. Or, or they would give you opium injections or electric shocks. That sounds fun. Uh, or uh, turpentine enemas. I mean, none of it sounds that great. But Dr. Gull was different. He, he believed that the best way to treat a patient was to listen carefully to them. To go slow on the treatment and spend a fair bit of time just watching and understanding what was going on in that person's body, and and so he's famous for a number of things. But one of his most famous patients uh, was referred to in the in the medical journals simply as Miss A. It was a young lady that came to him, and uh, and she was she was visibly not well when she was brought to him. She had these semi-controllable tremors in her life. Her Cheeks were sunken. Her her skin was pulled taut over her kind of emaciated frame. Uh, Her heart rate was exceptionally low. Uh, Her breathing was shallow. And yet all of her symptoms didn't match any of the known diseases of the time. Plus, her organ functions were great. I mean, her her organs were good. Her urine was great. She had a a good appetite. It was all normal. Uh, And yet she was clearly dying. And so for two years, Dr. Gull oversaw the care of this patient, Miss A. And, um, and he just qu- quietly and gently began to nurse her back to health. And little by little, she got better. And little by little, he collected this evidence of what exactly this new disease was that, that he was dealing with. And at the end of two years, when she was better, he was ready to give this new disease a name. And the name that he gave it was anorexia nervosa. We know it today simply as anorexia. And, and he went on in his career to treat many other young ladies who were dealing with anorexia. And what he came to realize was that this was the first or one of the first diseases that was entirely a psychological disease. In other words, the, the issue that the, these ladies were dealing with wasn't one that was a, a virus or a bacteria or, or something else going wrong in their body. The, the primary place that it was an issue was in their mind, in, the, in their brain. And, uh, and this, this disease was spawned by the culture of that day. In the mid-1800s, the, the, the pressure on women to have an hourglass figure was immense. Uh, the corset was a big thing in those days, and women kept ratcheting up tighter and tighter. And so these women saw this image of what it looked like to be a woman, a beautiful woman, and they went to greater and greater and greater lengths. To be able to look that way. And one of the myths uh, of those who are anorexic is that that when they look in the mirror, that they see a fat person. Now, I'm told that's not actually accurate. Rather, what happens is when they look in the mirror, they see someone who would be just a little bit better off if they were just a little bit thinner. But the problem is that thin is an abstract ideal. There's, There's no actual objective measure of what is thin for a lady. And so unfortunately, this issue has not gone away. I mean, there are this day in North America still somewhere around 8 million cases of anorexia, which is really interesting because we live in one of the richest countries in the world with more abundant food than ever in all of history. And yet, yet because of the, the values that our culture keep holding up and saying this is what it should be like, There are people who are voluntarily kind of starving themselves to death in order to to meet that kind of a cultural value. And the irony of it is that those who are anorexic have already mastered the thing that they're working so hard to achieve. They are excellent at losing weight. But what they're not good at is knowing when enough is enough, knowing when to stop. So the problem is they're so intent on getting thin that they don't, actually realize that they're already thin. And we see that. And we see that happening for them and our heart breaks. And we we see they're trapped in this kind of thinking. And yet when it comes to riches, when it comes to wealth, often we're trapped in the same kind of thinking, aren't we? Because rich is an abstract idea. You know, we always think that we would just be a little better off if we were just a little bit richer. And we become so intent on getting richer that we no longer realize that we are, in fact, rich. Gallup, uh, Gallup did a poll. They, they went to people and they said, how much money do you think you need to be rich? And what they discovered is that almost everyone that they interviewed thought that whatever they had, if it was double, they would be rich. So people that they talked to who were making $30,000 a year, they said. You know, if we only had $60,000 a year, we would be rich. But when they talked to people who were making $50,000 a year, they said, well, if only we had $100,000, then we'd be rich. In fact, uh, I read uh, there's this magazine called uh, Money Magazine who polled the people in there, the readers said, how much money do you think you need to be rich? And the answer that came back was $5 million dollars. Which means that by Gallup poll research, that, that the majority of people who responded to that, uh, to that uh, questionnaire, their, their, their assets, their value is probably about 2.5 million. You see, the problem with rich is that it's a moving target. It, it always changes. And the, and the biggest challenge facing rich people is that they've lost their ability to recognize that they are rich. And that's the case for us. We are rich. You know, just the other day, uh, CBC, uh, on their, uh, their app, had this ed- headline. Canadians too anxious about the future to enjoy the vibrant present, says an econom- says the economists. And they quoted this uh, 82-year-old uh, economic historian. He, uh, you'll see in a minute he's quite the character. But he studied the history of economies over, over years, over decades. And, um, and so they, this is what the article says. He says, we're the richest anybody's been in the history of the universe, said Professor Emeritus John Cohen, with a hyperbole permitted to an 82-year-old economic historian who says he's seen it all. That doesn't mean we necessarily stay that way, but right now, yeah, it's the best of times. And the article goes on to quote not only this guy, but Nobel Prize winning economists who say the same thing. That we right now are in the best of times in this country, in Canada the lowest unemployment in in Canadian history right now. And the economy is growing at a very healthy, very good pace. And the research and the the, uh, innovation that is going on in these times is really impressive. And I mean, the whole article went on to say that we are living in the best of times when it comes to the economy in one of the richest nations in the world. Which, of course, is not the case for almost, well, not almost, but for much of the rest of the world. I mean, take, take a, for example, again, how we live. You know, we earn enough money in five days of working that we can afford to live for seven days. We have all the food and uh, housing and uh, clothing and shelter, health care that's, that's necessary to live for seven days. And we just take that for granted. Like, of course. But in fact, that's a fairly unique thing in this part of history, given all of history. And it's definitely a unique thing to this part of the world. And what's more, I mean, there are some households where there are families of three, four, five or more that only one person actually goes out and works. But the amount of money that that person makes in five days is enough to support not just them, but their entire family for seven days for all of those things. And again, we said, well, that's, that's cool. But the fact of the matter is around the world, that is considered incredible. Uh, most people can't imagine that. It also means that if we're working, for most of us, about a five-day hour or 5 day week, that we have about 50 hours of leisure time. Again, a luxury that most people in the world and most throughout history never knew. See, we have a fair bit of wealth. And you might say, well, okay, granted, we have that, but but, but that just convinces me that I'm not poor, not, not that I'm necessarily rich. But again, my guess is that that, that you're a lot richer than you think. Uh, it just doesn't feel like it. So, so again, let's say that I offered you a wage of $41,000. Uh, $41,000 in BC is considered sort of a, 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 an entry-level salary into a job. It's kind of Roughly where most jobs kind of begin if you're getting a salary. Now, if, I, if you're making $41,000, for some people, you'd be like, oh, that's a good raise for me. For others of you, it would be like, ooh, that's like, that would definitely be a decrease. But if you're making $41,000, then you're making more than 96% of the people in this world. In other words, as one author put it, you're in the 4% club. Of the 9 billion people, or more who live on this planet, you are in the top 4% richest people in the entire world. Which means that you're incredibly rich. And it means that the problems that you and I have are what we jokingly refer to as first world problems, right? I mean, the phone on my battery keeps dying. The, the, the internet at our place is so slow. I mean, those are first world problems. If you have problems deciding where you're going to go on holidays or if Amazon doesn't have your size, I mean, those are first world problems. In fact, this summer, this summer when there is a watering ban on again and, and, and your grass, certainly my grass, is going to turn yellow again, you have to remember that in most places of the world, every day, most people, or at least primarily women, with big jugs on their head go and collect water from a great distance away to bring back just so they have water to cook and to wash in. You know, the idea that, you know, in this part of the world, we just spray water all over our ground. I mean, they can hardly conceive of that kind of opportunity that we have. I mean, we are so very, very rich. Now, I point this out not to make you feel guilty. In fact, I hope you're not feeling guilty because that's not the goal here. A guilt rarely does anything positive in people's lives. This is it's not about guilt. Rather, this is about gratitude. This is about opening your eyes to see just how, how much goodness God has poured into our lives. In fact, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, now Jesus is teaching. Uh, he is uh, gathered, this huge group of people is gathered. He's on the side of this hill. Uh, and um, and the, the, his teaching is all about how to live life well. How to, how to flourish. And he's, he's talking to all these people. So it's come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he's just talking about like real life stuff. He's talking about how to find happiness and, and divorce and, and, uh, and revenge and, 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 and giving to those who are in need. He talks about prayer and about worrying and about judging others. I mean, just the stuff that is part of people's everyday life. And in the middle of it, he gets talking about money. And, and here's what Jesus says. Is Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse 19, Jesus says this: "Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." It's such a famous teaching of Jesus, and if you've been in the church any amount of time, you probably heard this verse. Uh, taught and explained. And, and really, it's all about, you know, what your money says about what it is that you value. But then if you skip down, Jesus goes on to say this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And again, such a famous verse, such famous teachings by Jesus who's saying, if you try to serve both God and money, you're going to, it's going to fail. But in the middle of these two verses, in the middle of these two teachings that are so well known about money, Jesus says this in verse 22, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, the question is this, Jesus, what are you talking about here? I mean, you've been talking about money at the first part, you know, do not store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And then after this, you talk about you can't serve two masters. But in the middle, you get talking about, you know, if your eyes are healthy, your, your body is light, will see light. And, and if not, your whole body will be in darkness. Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, of course, it's with your eyes that you see the world. And, uh, and, and the word that, oh, Sorry. Well, of course, it's with your eyes that you see the world. And, and Jesus is saying, look, if, you're, if your eyes are healthy, th- then all this light comes into, the, in, into you, into, into your body, into who you are. And, uh, and the word that he uses for healthy is a Greek word. It's the word haplos. It means, literally, it means simply or clearly. He says, if you can see simply, if you can see clearly the world around you, All this light will come into your life. But that same Greek word also has a secondary meaning. It means bountifully or generously. In fact, that exact same word is used in a number of different places in the Bible in this way. So, for instance, in the book of James, the the writer of it, James, he says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously, who gives haplos to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And again, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, the Apostle Paul is writing about this this church in northern Greece that had given so generously to the church in in Jerusalem when they had a time of need. And he uses this word, he says, he speaks about their rich generosity. And and, and that's the the meaning of this word, healthy, generous. And then the, the other word that Jesus uses, he says, if your eyes are unhealthy, that's the Greek word, Poneros, and it means unhealthy or sick, like is in a degenerative eye disease where your eyes, your your focus gets more and more narrowed and your world gets darker and darker until you can't see. That's what that word means. But it also means jealous, envious, stingy, and miserly. The Hebrew equivalent is found in Proverbs 28 where it says, a stingy man, a sick man, and an unhealthy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. See, here's what Jesus is saying. If you can see the world around you simply, clearly, if you can see the world around you with generous eyes, if you can see how generous God has been to you, And you have to understand here that he's talking about money because the verse before is all about money. The verse after is all about money. The context that Jesus says, this is all about finances. He's saying, if you can begin to see how incredibly generous God has been to you financially in your world, then there is this light that will come into your life. There will be this this beauty in your world because you see what it is that God has done. But... If you can't, if all that you can see is how much more everyone else has than you, if all that you can focus on is getting just a little bit more, a little bit richer, if the primary focus in your world is like, I just have to get a little bit more money and you can't see how incredibly generous God has been to you, then Jesus says it's like having a a degenerative eye disease your focus gets more and more narrowed and your world gets darker and darker until even though you have all of this wealth and all of this resource and you're richer than 96% of the world around you, your world becomes incredibly dark. And Jesus says, how sad is that? How dark is that kind of darkness? And see, what Jesus is calling us to is to examine our attitude about the kind of money and the kind of goodness that God is pouring into our lives. And he wants us to ask this question. Can you see how incredibly generous he has been to you? Can you see how rich you actually are? Or are you missing what is right before your eyes? Or are you like the anorexic who's already thin? They just can't see it, even though everyone else can see it so painfully obvious. All they can see if they're an anorexic is this picture that the culture holds up, that you have to be more thin, more thin all the time, and it's slowly destroying them. And the question that Jesus puts to us is, can you see that you are rich? that God has been incredibly gracious to you or can all that you see is what the culture holds up, which says you're not rich enough. You'll never be rich enough. No matter how hard you try, someone will always have something better. If it isn't a yacht, it'll be a private jet. Some of you need to go home and print out this verse, Matthew 6, and 23. It's not a famous verse. But you should print that verse out and you should put it on your mirror or you should put it on the lock screen on your phone and you should look at it and you should learn it until the, the truth of Jesus' words seep into your heart and your eyes begin to brighten and, and the, the light comes into your world and you say, yes, he has been so, so good to us. We are rich. We are rich. Which means that as followers of Jesus, we need to learn how to become Good at being rich. That's what we're going to talk about beginning next week. But before we get there, you need to embrace this somewhat uncomfortable reality that most people in our culture don't want to embrace, which is that you already are rich. Just as Miss A had to embrace the fact that she already was thin in order to be able to find healing and health and wholeness in our life, you and I, we need to embrace This idea, we already are rich. Otherwise, you will spend all of your life trying to cross a finish line that you probably already crossed tens of thousands of dollars ago, but you will never actually make it. So this week, this week I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you, the next time that you buy a fancy coffee, I want you to step back and and take a minute and calculate how much you spent on coffee. Not so that you feel guilty. This is not about guilt. It's about gratitude. So that you look and say, wow, how good is God that he could, he, he has given me the money that I can spend $5 on a fancy coffee. And the next time that you go into your closet, I want to I challenge you to reach to some of those clothes that are way at the back. And you haven't worn it in a while and, and to take it out and say, wow, this is nice. I don't know where this has been. And then I want to invite you. Try taking a few moments and calculating the value of the clothes that you have in your closet. Again, not in any kind of shame, but rather for gratitude that you might say, God, look at your grace. Look at your goodness in my life. Look at, look at your kindness and your generosity to me. You might say, well, I don't have that many clothes. That's okay. Go to the garage, look at your tools or, or go to the toys that you have in the backyard. Or, or, I mean, just look around you and see God's grace and his goodness in your life. This week, this week may you see clearly, may you see simply, may you see with generous eyes just how generous God has been in your life and may it lead you to thank him and to worship Him. Would you would you pray with me? Let's pray together. God we, uh, we who live in this country in this time of the in history God your grace to us, your, your generosity to us is so incredible. But because we've grown up with it, because it's just all around us, sometimes it's so easy to miss it. And God, sometimes it's even easy for us to become uh, narrow-sighted and, and, and to, to even become downcast because it isn't as much as the next person. And God, I pray that this week, this week for each of us, God, that you would open our eyes. Lord, that our eyes might be healthy, that our eyes might be wide open to see your generosity and your grace to us. And Father, may that gratitude just well up in us. May it well up in us in a way that we turn to worship and to thank you and to honor you. God, what we have in this country is what so many don't have. And so we bless you this day. And God, we pray that you would teach us how to be good at being rich. We, we pray that as we continue on in this series that that you would continue to teach us. So we bless you, we thank you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.